Today we're going to be in Acts chapter 22, but before we go there, uh, turn back to Proverbs 1, the first chapter in Proverbs. As we've been doing every Sunday, we want to do a uh, Proverbs each Sunday. Proverbs is the wisdom literature. Uh, it is the Word of God. It is a way to uh, receive the wisdom of God and apply it to your daily lives. Chapter 1, verse 1. It says, The Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel. Here's the purpose, starting in verse 2. To know wisdom and instruction. To perceive the words of understanding. To receive the instruction of wisdom, justice, judgment, and equity. To give prudence to the simple. To the young man, knowledge and discretion. A wise man will hear and increase learning, and a man of understanding will attain wise counsel. To understand a proverb and an enigma, the words of the wise and their riddles. These are what the Word of God provides for us if we want it. Again, God has given us free will, but these are some of the things we can receive from God's wisdom. Wisdom, instruction, understanding, prudence, knowledge, discretion and learning certainly all things we would like to attain and verse 7 it says the fear of the lord is the beginning of wisdom of knowledge but fools despise wisdom and instruction now in order to get all this okay you have to start with the fear of the lord that's the first step that's before even the first step because if you don't have a healthy reverence or fear of god these other things are not going to sink in if we're if we're covered with pride or haughtiness or any of those type of negative characteristics, God's word will not sink in. And the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Now, you may say, well, there's a lot of smart people that are atheists and scientists who are very smart and they have knowledge and it seems like they have wisdom. Well, that's interesting because Richard Dawkins, one of the leading scientist atheists, speaks about the body, he speaks about creation, he speaks about purpose, he speaks about design. And then in the next breath, he says, but it all happened by accident. There's a whole mathematical equation with, you know, uh, how many atoms there are in the, universes, in the universe versus the interatomic interactions multiplied by how many seconds there are on the earth. And you have something like 10 to the 12 plus 10 to the 18 plus uh, something like 10 to the 20. And you end up with this huge number with a one with all these zeros next to it. And what you find is the probability that anything could have even happened by accident once uh, exceeds by, I think, 30 billion years the age of the universe. So, I mean, when you start really getting into the mathematics, it is foolish. And these, these equations can be researched. Anyone can understand the equations. So the, I don't want to get too more off the topic, but I was asked Monday night, what is your direction for the church? Nobody gave me any time to answer it. It was unrehearsed. And I said this because it comes from my heart. The direction for the church is we can talk about buildings, we can talk about all kinds of other things. It's that the Word of God changes our hearts. Now, in our, I'm included in that. That's my direction for the church. Because all the other things you want to add onto a foundation, if the foundation is weak and it's not built upon the rock, the foundation cannot stand. So my vision for the church is I'm going to worry about teaching you. I'm going to worry about feeding you. That's my job. And I'm going to see people's lives be changed if you allow it. And then God will add all the other things to it. doesn't mean that we don't desire it, 
but it means that the foundation has to come first. Okay? Buildings, evangelism, all that stuff can't happen without the proper foundation. But fools despise wisdom and instruction. And that's the truth. All, everything that you read up to those seven verses, you might as well throw it out if you despise wisdom and instruction. Me, I always want to learn. I always want to look to somebody. I always want to uh, read. I always want to uh, be humble enough to receive information that I may not already have. So it is um, uh, an opposite there. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Okay. Now I go back to Acts chapter 22, and we'll start in our text. The last time we saw the events leading to the Apostle Paul's arrest, and today we're going to read of Paul's defense before the crowd. Now, before we get into 22, I'm just going to start with the verse before that, 2140, and then continue through. It said, So when he had given him permission, Paul stood on the stairs and motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great silence, he spoke to them in the Hebrew language, saying, Men, Brethren and fathers, hear my defense before you now. And when they heard that he spoke to them in the Hebrew language, they kept all the more silent. Then he said, I am indeed a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel, taught according to the strictness of our father's law, and was zealous toward God as you all are today. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering into prisons both men and women as also the high priest bear me witness, and all the council of elders, from whom I also received letters to the brethren, and went to Damascus to bring in chains, even those who were there to Jerusalem to be punished. Again, we saw last week, if you were here, a ruckus, a big disturbance that led to the Apostle Paul's arrest. And now he's being allowed by the Roman authorities to make his defense to the people. And the Romans, of course, hoping that he'll just kind of calm them down a little bit because they have to deal with the crowd that gets out of control. But if, as we go through Paul's defense, we see that he's not trying to get out of trouble, but he's trying to reason with his fellow Jewish believers why they should believe in the Messiah, and intertwined in that is his God-given commission. So we have a few orders of business. The first order of business, the Apostle Paul lays out his credentials as a devout Jew. Number one, he spoke Hebrew. It's a good start. He studied under the Rabbi Gamaliel. Now, not only is he a biblical figure, but we know that biblical figures are historical figures. For a long time, they didn't believe that Pontius Pilate actually existed until they found his inscription in the Caesarea uh, Amphitheater. Okay? And the historian said, oh, I guess he, he really was a, uh, uh, an actual figure. He was historical. So the Apostle Paul, as Saul, studied under Gamaliel. Now, if you go onto your computer and Google Gamaliel, you'll find that he was a very famous rabbi, very well-loved. Uh, Gamaliel was the grandson of, of the great rabbi Hillel, also a very famous um, uh, rabbi. He was a teacher, the apostle Paul, or Saul, was a teacher of Mosaic law. He was from Tarsus, which was known for its philosophy and education. He even persecuted the way, which was another name for Christians. Now, understand that in the early days, all the Christians were Jewish. They were Jewish believers that believed in their Messiah. And uh, those who didn't, considered what they were doing heretical. So he said, hey guys, I was with you. I used to persecute these people. He was a member of the Sanhedrin, or the council, which at that time under Roman domination had the greatest authority in the Jewish area um, that, you, that you could possibly have without being Roman. 
And basically he says to them, you can check in, a, in essence with the high priest and the elders. Probably some of them were standing right there. Remember, he's in Jerusalem, he's in the temple area, okay? And no doubt some of them probably looked at Paul and said, yeah, you know, he used to work with us. But in verse 2, the fact that he spoke to them in Hebrew also kept them quiet. Now, if you're looking at this so far, you see this is quite a resume. To the Jewish observer, this was very impressive. And back in verse 37, we saw that he spoke Greek to the soldiers. The soldier goes, you can speak Greek? He was a little surprised. And in verse 40, he speaks Hebrew to the Jews. Now, some think it was Aramaic, which was a local Semitic dialect. Either way, he spoke to those, the people in, in their own languages. We, we think of 1 Corinthians 9, where, the, where Paul says, I have become all things to all men. To the Jew, I've become a Jew. To the Greek, he became a Greek. Whatever it took to win people over to Christ and show them the truth of their Messiah. I even think about our fellowship. Every pastor has a different composite of their fellowship. We're in the Princeton area. There are a lot of people here who are highly educated. So I really have to do my homework. And now that there's a surgeon listening to the website, you know, I have to check and double check. You know, I just do that. I get a little obsessive about it. Do I have this fact right? But, you know, I have to feed you meat. You know, you, if you have some type of education or you're a learned person, I have to give you something that's going to feed you. It's that meat of the word. But there's also some here who need the milk of the word. Somebody may have come in from the neighborhood and say, I don't know anything about God or the Bible, and then I have to bring it down to the simple things of the gospel, which is the milk. So my challenge is to weave milk and meat into the same message, and you'll see me do that. Verse 3. Paul says I was, he was zealous for God. He was zealous towards God. But you know what? He did it ignorantly. Understand this. What we know today as a terrorist, if you look at the actions of Paul back then before he's, he was a, his conversion, he fit that mode. He terrorized people. He would have the authority from the council and he'd break down doors and bind men and women and remove them from their homes and take them bound just because they had a different belief system. He terrorized people. He was mad with anger. He had a reputation, but he thought he was doing God a favor. He was zealous for God. He had a zeal. Lord, I'm doing this for you. I'm doing you a favor. But it was misdirected. How much crimes and atrocities have happened over the centuries because of religious zealots? And that's often what keeps the unbelievers out of church. They're like, well, they're all religious zealots. They don't understand. We, if we really follow the teachings of Christ, we're going to love one another. We're going to forgive one another. We're not going to go out mad with anger trying to do crazy things. If you look at terrorists today, if you watch the, um, the, um, uh, the interpretations of Osama bin Laden when he speaks in Arabic and it goes into the English, he thinks he's doing God a favor. God will be pleased by me blowing things up and killing innocent people. And again, that's that religious zeal. But of course, it's a misdirected zeal. Verse 6, now it happened as I journeyed and came near Damascus at about noon, suddenly a great light from heaven shone around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me indeed saw the light and were afraid, but they did not hear the voice of him who spoke to me. So I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Arise, and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all things which are appointed for you to do. 
And since I could not see for the glory of that light, being led by the hand of those who were with me, I came to Damascus. So the second order of business, right? The first order of business is Paul's credentials. Second order of business. Paul is recounting his encounter with the divine on his way to persecute more Christians. So far, so good. The account of the supernatural has the crowd riveted to his every word, although that wasn't Paul's intention. The crowd was quiet and the soldiers were happy for now. Now, understand this. I'm not going to go into great detail about uh, Paul's conversion because what you have is a juxtapositioning or an incorporation of Paul's conversion experience in Acts chapter 9, and it's put into Acts chapter 22. So if you didn't catch that, just go onto the website. You can see the whole detailed exposition of Acts chapter 9. But in that day, the future was unsure. It was tumultuous. There was oppression, especially if you were Jewish. And surely the idea of divine intervention was captivating. Is it any different today? Every Sunday I come up for the last three Sundays. I mean, it's just amazing. All the tornadoes and the sinkholes and the earthquakes and, you know, it's mind-boggling. Now, I have to say, in New Jersey, we kind of feel insulated. We really haven't seen a whole lot of tectonic activity or cataclysmic events happening here. The only thing we have here is just a whole lot of crooked politicians, which is pretty bad. But, you know, it's kind of almost, we can almost become, like, insulated from what's going on in the world. And the world is looking around. They're like, what's going on? And just like back then, the world is looking in all these places for an answer. They're looking in themselves. They're looking on TV. They're looking, 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 and they're not even sure where they're supposed to be looking. But again, they're looking in the wrong places. Because right here, the Word of God, if you stay with us for any amount of time, you can see that the answers are all found in this book. And the second point is that the Apostle Paul recounts his experience with great detail. When I got saved, I still remember, was this 13 years ago? I still remember the jeans I was wearing, which I don't have anymore, the sneakers. I could tell you what part of the church I actually went up. And then when I went to receive the Lord and, and say the sinner's prayer, I had my hand on the stage because my knees were knocking. I was so nervous. <laughs> but I remember everything about my conversion experience. When you have a meeting with the living God and what he has done in your life and the change that happens, you don't forget it. And that change is important because, you know, Paul is here in front of these guys and says, I was just like you. And you think that you're Jewish? I was more Jewish than you were. And I was teaching you. Um, I, I learned under the best teachers. And in my misdirected zeal, I persecuted the, these Jewish brethren who believed in Jesus. But you know what? I had an encounter with the living God, and it's changed my life. Look at me now versus look at me then. And that's what it is. The change that happens to you when you have an encounter with the living God is what's very important to those around you. Because if you don't change after a few years and you're just the same old person, you have to ask your, yourself, am I really in the faith? Has Jesus really had an effect on my life? Am I paying attention? And all those questions are important. Verse 12. Then one, Ananias, a devout man according to the law, having a good testimony with all the Jews who dwelt there, came to me and he stood and said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that same hour I looked up at him. Then he said, The God of our fathers has chosen you, that you should know his will and see the just one, and hear the voice of his mouth. For you will be his witness to all men of what you have seen and heard. 
And now, why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized, and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. The third order of business. Paul recounts his own conversion experience. Now, verse 16 sounds a little bit choppy, but uh, going into some of the Greek and looking at uh, some of the commentaries from the scholars, such as Ken West, a better translation would be, wash away your sins having previously or already called on the name of the Lord. It's an aorist participle versus a present participle, and that makes a huge difference in the interpretation of the Scripture. In other words, in English, what he means is, you're getting baptized in water. That's not going to wash away your sins. But what has already happened is the blood of Jesus has washed away your sins because you've already called on him. Now go and be baptized. So we have to understand what baptism is. We don't believe in baptismal regeneration. We don't believe that when you, a person or a child, you dip them in the water, all of a sudden something magical happens to them. Baptism, according to the Bible, is something that happens when in your heart there's a change of heart. You're filled with the Spirit. You believe Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And it's symbolism. You go into the water, you're immersed, you come out, showing the world that you're a new creature in Christ. You're dying with, to the old self, and you're coming out as a spiritual man. And that's what baptism is. Verse 17. Then it happened when I returned to Jerusalem and I was praying in the temple that I was in a trance and saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, for they will, not, they will not receive your testimony concerning me. So I said, Lord, they know that in every synagogue I imprisoned and beat those who believe on you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I also was standing by consenting to his death and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. Then he said to me, Depart, for I will send you far to the Gentiles. The fourth order of business. Paul is recounting his commission from the Almighty. He's telling them, he's telling Paul, God is telling Paul specifically, get out of Jerusalem, they won't receive you. Now you have to think about, that is pretty sad, because Jerusalem was dedicated to the worship of God. The temple was there, the priests were there, the pilgrimages were made there, the feasts were there, okay? So this is actually a sad statement by God himself to Paul. They're not going to receive what you have to say, you've got to get out of Jerusalem. Jerusalem was dedicated to God and it was the furthest they could be from him. Many religious institutions today have become the same thing. They've become dead and they turn their back on God. It's so easy for us to look at the Old Testament, to look at the Jewish system, to look at and, and be haughty and have an attitude towards them. But Christianity today, unfortunately, is taking a turn for the worse. And the Bible predicted these things. Churches have become social clubs or um, ego empires or, or the like. And they're forgetting all about what I just read to you in Proverbs chapter 1, that foundation that we need in the Word of God. I want to read um, Revelation 3 as you turn to it. Revelation 3, only three verses, starting with verse 1. In the beginning of the book of Revelation, Jesus is speaking to the churches that existed there, and also some make the application to churches today and uh, church ages, so to speak. But in chapter 3, he's speaking to the church of Sardis. So remember, Jesus is speaking to a church. Make sure you have that frame of mind, supposedly other believers. And in verse 1, he says, And to the angel of the church, or the messenger of the church in Sardis, write, These things, says he, who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, quote, I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. 
Imagine the Lord saying that. I think I'm alive. I'm a Christian. Yeah, I got my life going together. I got everything in its, its certain place. Uh, I'm, I'm good. I'm good to go. And Jesus says, you're not alive. That's just, that's just your facade. You're dead. You're dead inside. I was talking to a group of uh, individuals uh, not too long ago, and I said, you know what? I probably chastise the Christian church more than I chastise Muslims or Catholics or Jews or Hindus or any other religion. Probably my main chastisement goes to the body of Christ because it's, it's starting to unravel, folks. It's starting to unravel. The American church is probably the most decadent in the world, maybe followed by Europe. But Jesus says, you have a name that you are alive, but you are dead. Many uh, Bible commentators say that this is a picture of the Protestant church. It started a good thing, the Reformation, to clean up the church. And then over the years, it kind of died out and lost its oomph. And you see that a lot of these denominations have just become dead churches. Not all, but a lot of them. Verse 3, or verse 2, Jesus says, Be watchful, remember, we speak to believers, and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. For I have not found your works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Repentance is lacking in the church today. I just want to just give it some time and everything will be fine. Very little repentance happens in the church today. Hold fast and repent. I'm going to preach the pure, unadulterated word of God, folks, whether it's popular or not. Therefore, if you will not watch, Jesus says, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. He's speaking to the church. He's speaking to the church. Guys, we've got to open our eyes. This is what's going on around us. It's not about a Sunday thing. It's not about a social group. It's about our love for Jesus Christ. It's not about having a name or, or a facade. It's about our hearts. Our hearts have to be given to Jesus. Because the world out there thinks that we're hypocrites, and a lot of us are. Especially if you look at televised Christianity, it's, it's, it's awful. It's only good for entertainment. Not only should we have a name that we're alive, but we should be alive. We should be alive. Where was I? <laughs> Verse 20. I like to put myself... I don't like to just read it... Brrr, Everybody go home, we'll see you next Sunday. I want to put myself into the text. I don't want to be guilty of making things up and reading into the text, but this is history. This actually happened, okay? Paul is talking to the Lord, and I could see probably the sorrow in his heart when he talked about what happened to Stephen. Remember Stephen in Acts chapter 6? Wonderful deacon. He was such a spiritual man. The Bible says he had a face like an angel as they were throwing stones at him and pelting him before he died. What a wonderful testament to God. And Paul, before his conversion, held the clothes of those and consented to the death of this young man. He had blood on his hands. Now, God forgave him. God doesn't hold it against him. But you could see, God forgives us. But we should... Sometimes people get caught up in talking about their old life as they're going to top each other. Well, I used to be a heroin junkie. Well, I used to be embezzlement. And people start saying, this is what I did before I became a Christian. Almost like it's a cool thing to do. Paul speaks, I believe, with sorrow in his heart. I stood there, and I can still see the stones hitting Stephen as he was crying out to God. I know you forgive me, Lord, but it just bothers me. And you know what? We should forgive ourselves. If God has forgiven us, we should forgive ourselves. But we should also have a mind to understand that sin is sin, and it's ugly, and it's offensive to God. Verse 21. Then he said to me, and again, if you have a Bible that's maybe all in black and white print, um, 
when I, when I change my voice, for those of you who don't have the red print, the red print is the voice of the Lord. Then he said to me, depart, for I will send you far from here to the Gentiles. And they listened to him until his word, and then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he is not fit to live. Then as they cried out and tore off their clothes, they threw dust into the air, a sign of, of mourning and of, you know, crisis. Fifth and last utterance of Paul prior to being taken away. He said, I was given, basically, he's telling his Jewish brethren, I was given a commission specifically to the Gentiles. Paul loved his people. He said, I wish I could be a curse to Christ that all my Jewish brothers would come to Christ. That's how much he loved his fellow Jews. But the Lord had a different plan for him. He said, go, depart, and be with the Gentiles. Now, this was a very unpopular message. Very unpopular message, as you can see. <laughs> the Roman soldiers are you know, probably relaxing, put their short swords back in their sheaths, everybody's smiling, Paul's talking about his credentials, all of a sudden he says this, and I'm sure the Roman soldier's like, what, what just happened? You know, they're all in uproar again. It was an unpopular message, necessary nonetheless. Sin is an unpopular message. Repentance is an unpopular message. The fact that we've re rebelled against God and we don't deserve anything is an unpopular message. The cross is an unpopular message, and it's become sanitized from a lot of Christian messages. The blood of Christ for the remission of our sins is an unpopular message. The only way to heaven is very unpopular. Bigoted, mean-spirited, listen, I didn't make it up. Don't kill the messenger. It was God's idea. I follow what he says. I'm his lackey, okay? That's fine with me. But these are unpopular messages, but they're necessary. If I told you about a, a cure for cancer, that if you had cancer... And, and I'm like, you know, I don't want to come out with this cure because people are going to ridicule me. It's going to be offensive. You know, it just defies logic of what everybody else has been studying, but it works. And I didn't give it to you. What would you think of me? It would be awful. These are unpopular messages, but they're necessary nonetheless. And again, that's why a lot of it isn't being preached. Paul could have also kept quiet. He could have preserved his life, and he could have been freed because the crowd was eating out of his hand at this point. What does it say about a man who makes an unpopular decision and gets no conceivable gain from it? You could say he's crazy, you could say he's self-destructive, or you could say, well, there's a third option, that he's really hearing from the Lord regardless of the consequences. And if you've been a Christian for any time, let me tell you something, Christianity is not a walk in the park. I don't want to scare anybody who may be, be you know, wrestling with that, you know what, this is right, I want to turn to God. Christianity is not a walk in the park. God's going to try your character. God's going to try your faith. God's going to put you through the fire to, to strengthen you and harden you, okay? Heating over and over again is a process that are used in making swords, these incredibly hard swords, but they have to complete, they have to continually be heated and then hammered out and then folded and then heated. The samurais, you know, these guys are just masters the way they make these swords. And it's the same thing with us. We're going to be a mile wide and just an inch thick if we're not tested by the fires. If you're a Christian for any time, there's going to be a point in your life where the Lord says to you, I got an, I got an idea. This is what I want you to do. And you're going to say, Oh, let's talk about this. Did you, did you follow all the consequences? What this is going to do to me, what this is going to do to my family, what this is going to do to my finances, what this is going to do between me and my peer groups. Lord, no, I, I, you know, have you really thought this out? And we get into this discussion with the Lord, and the Lord says, yes, yes, do it and trust me. So again, if you've been a Christian for any time, the Lord is going to put you in that position. That's a good thing. 
Not, he's not trying to torture us. Because as time goes by, we look and we see we're not that shallow person that we were years ago. The Lord has made us deep. And he's strengthened us and he's hardened us and he's forged us. So that when he uses us for something, we, we don't have a tendency to be that shallow person and think we're going to take the credit. There's so many reasons why the Lord allows that to happen. Verse 24. The commander ordered him to be brought into the barracks and said that he should be examined under scourging, a brutal whipping. We saw that happen to Jesus. So that he might know why they shouted so against him. And as they bound him with thongs, Paul said to the centurion who stood by, Is it lawful you to scourge a man who is a Roman and uncondemned? When the centurion heard that, he went and told the commander, saying, Take care what you do, for this man is a Roman. Then the commander came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman? He said, Yes. And the commander answered, With a large sum I obtained this citizenship. And Paul said, But I was born a citizen. Then immediately those who were about to examine him withdrew from him. And the commander was also afraid after he found out that he was a Roman and because he had bound them. The next day, because he wanted to know for certain why he was accused by the Jews, he released him from his bonds and commanded the chief priests and all their council to appear and brought Paul down and set him before them. Again, one minute the crowd is okay, the next minute they're in an uproar and they want to kill Paul. And the Romans are thinking, you know, the soldiers are thinking, you know, what just happened here? So this is what they did. They would take the person. If they understand what Paul was saying, they probably didn't understand it fluently because they were, they were at a loss, the whole communication gap, language barrier. So what they did was they took Paul and they were going to have him beat. This is what the Romans did. They beat you until you confessed. And if you had nothing to confess, you probably died an awful death for nothing. But they were very good at what they did, and it was so painful that you would tell them what they wanted to know. But Paul stops him and says, listen, it's not lawful for you to beat an uncondemned Roman citizen. Now, if you look up historical sources, Roman citizenship came with rights that were fully protected by the Roman government, no matter where you are in the Roman Empire. And um, there's a whole list of dictums that are there, what you could do and what you couldn't do and what your rights were. The Roman citizen, just a few, had the right not to be beaten or whipped or received the death penalty unless they were found guilty of treason. And even if they were to get the death penalty, it was a more humane way. You could see the difference between Jesus and most of the apostles. Peter was crucified upside down, and the apostle Paul was beheaded. You might say, well, you know, <laughs> six one way, half, to, half a dozen the other, but beheading, you lost your life quickly. Crucifixion, you could languish for days, depending on the strength of your body. It was a miserable way to die. And we know that the apostle Paul got beheaded. So why did Paul do what he did? It only seemed to get him a lot of grief and ultimately death. Because when you truly realize the priceless quality of salvation, you can't keep it to yourself. Jesus even said, no one lights a lamp. In those days they had little homes, and a lamp would give light pretty much to the whole home. Jesus said, nobody lights a lamp and puts it under a basket. That would be foolish. He said, they, they light the lamp and they put it on the lampstand in a place that will give light to the whole house, okay? Paul fully understood and lived the life of the gospel. The gospel, Jesus, is the light of the world. And we, when we reflect Jesus, when we're like Jesus, we also emanate that light of the world. Just like the moon, by itself it doesn't have any luminosity. But because the earth is in a position and the sun and the moon, the way the, uh, the sun 
you know, shines onto the earth, we can see the, the moon appears to be lighting up, but it's only reflecting the light of the sun. We're like the moon. We give light only because we, we're in Jesus Christ. And Paul, no matter what the consequences, couldn't keep the gospel to himself. He wanted to share it. And you want to share it. I want to share it. No matter what's happening in my life, I always want to share the light of the gospel. I'll leave you with a, a quick uh, story and then uh, we'll close up. But uh, not too long ago, a Jewish believer came to me and she said, I need your counsel. I have a friend who's a Jewish believer and he's in a very strong, strict, orthodox community. And he said he's been, in a sense, listening to her, reading the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, and he says, you know what, it's very convincing. Jesus, I, I really believe Jesus is the Messiah, but I have one problem. I live in a community where my job, my family, my friends, it, it's all in this community. And if they find out I'm a believer in Jesus, I'm going to be ostracized. It's going to come with a lot of pain. What should I do? Or she asked me, what should I tell him? And I said, let him be a quiet believer. I said, don't discourage him. Let him keep reading. Because eventually, he's going to be so convinced and the Lord's going to work on him so much that he's going to have to share it. He's going to come out of, he, he's not going to be able to contain himself. He's going to take that light out from under the basket and he's going to put it on the lampstand. And who knows, maybe some of his family, friends, or his occupation will be saved. I know this. I'll end up with something, with very, with something very short. If you've truly experienced what God has done in your life and the beauty of the gospel and the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, you won't be able to keep it quiet either. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are blessed.